Our scripture this morning is from Matthew 6 again. Matthew 6, 5 through 13. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be Keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning. Peace be with you. Really good to see you. Welcome to Trinity Community Church. Especially if this is your first time, it's really, really good to see you. I'm glad you're here. Uh, there was a video that passed around online a couple years ago. Some of you may have seen it. It was actually a psychology experiment from the University of Illinois. Uh, pretty straightforward uh, task, which was to count uh, passes. There were two groups of people. Uh, right in front of the camera. Half of them were wearing white shirts, half of them were wearing black shirts. And they each had a basketball, each of the groups had a basketball, and they were passing it back and forth and moving around one another. And so the task was simply to count the passes that the team with the white shirts made. So you had to kind of ignore what the team with the black shirts was doing and count the passes of the white shirts. Now, right in the middle of this video, a man in a full gorilla suit walks into the middle of the frame and stands right there in front of all the people and beats his chest a few times and then turns and walks off. Uh, you absolutely could not miss it, except that more than 50% of people do. Now, more than 50% of people, when they watch this video and they're counting the passes, they never see the gorilla that comes right into the middle of the screen. And so afterwards, they're asked, you know, how many, how many passes do you count? They say about 15. They say, did you know any, notice anything else different about the video? And they're like, no, what do you mean? And so they say, watch for the gorilla this time. And then when they see the video the second time, they're, they're shocked. They shout. They can't believe that it's the same video. And so what's happening is, is a form of selective attention. What, what our attention is focused on, when we get so focused on one thing, we can miss something that is so obvious and extraordinary right in the background. There is a, uh, a philosopher named Charles Taylor who uses this type of illustration to describe our, our culture. There are certain things that we focus our attention on to the exclusion of other things that might even be more extraordinary than what we're focused on ourselves. And so Charles Taylor calls this the imminent frame, imminent meaning right in front of us and frame being the things that we're looking at. So what he's saying is that we can see the things that are directly in front of us but we miss things that are in the background that are extraordinary. And what he's talking about is, is the way that Westerners, primarily Americans and Europeans, 
Because of the influence of secularism, we're taught to only see what is directly in front of us. We miss what's going on in the background. You see, Taylor's not a believer, but he explains in a lot of his writings that more traditional cultures, places like Latin America, Africa, Asia, they've, they've been trained over many years to understand and to believe in, in gods and, and devils, angels and demons, good and evil, sickness being affected by spiritual forces beyond our control. They've been trained to think in this way, whereas Westerners are the complete opposite. We're busy counting the passes while a gorilla walks right into the middle of our frame and we miss it. Last week I quoted the super criminal Kaiser Soze from the movie uh, The Usual Suspects. The movie opens by saying, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And yet as Christians, we know that evil is real. The devil is real, an actual person who is all evil in the world and one who is opposing us as believers at every single turn. It does us no good to pretend like there is no devil or like there is no real evil in the world. We are at war. A very real battle is going on all around us. It's unseen, but it has vicious intensity. There's no neutral ground in the universe, right? C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. And so last week's phrase was lead us not into temptation where we saw the nature of the devil's temptations against us. Temptations to comfort and ease, to popularity, to power. This week we're looking at the second half of the verse, but deliver us from the evil one looking at the nature of spiritual warfare. Now, as we've said, the Lord's Prayer is Jesus' pattern for our ordinary, everyday prayers. So everything that's included in the Lord's Prayer is meant to be prayed on a regular, on a daily, on a moment-by-moment basis, including this phrase, deliver us from the evil one. And so today I want to carefully introduce to you the biblical teaching on what we call spiritual warfare. It's one of the most misunderstood aspects of the Christian life. I think it's so critically important, not just for prayer, but for every aspect of our lives. And in particular, I want to look at two things. Pretty simple. What is spiritual warfare? And then second, how do we engage in spiritual warfare? Now, to quote C.S. Lewis again from Mere Christianity, enemy-occupied territory. That's what this world is, enemy-occupied territory. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. Spiritual warfare is the term we use to describe the ongoing unseen spiritual battle between God and his people, between God and and his people and the devil and the demons that are at work in the world. Spiritual opposition is the term we use to describe the, the devil and demons work against us on a regular basis. This is in the background of every page of Scripture. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. You see it in Jesus' teaching. You see it in the apostles' teaching. You certainly see it in Revelation and the prophetic literature. It's all over the Scriptures, and yet I'm afraid we talk about it so little in our Western churches, particularly in the the church tradition that I've been a part of for a while. The, uh, The seminary that I went to is in the Reformed Baptist tradition. Very intellectual, Uh, wants to have a reason for everything. 
And so spiritual formation, spiritual warfare often gets pushed to the side, or there's just a lack of awareness of what's going on. It doesn't feel like something you can explain. It doesn't feel like counting the passes right in front of you. And so I think in the tradition that I've been a part of, we've been missing the gorilla in the back of the frame for a long time. What we need to do is let the scriptures determine our understanding of spiritual warfare. So first passage I want to look at is John 10. Jesus is teaching his disciples. In verse 9, he says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so Jesus describes two individuals who are calling out to us. The first is the thief who lies and kills and and steals, trying to steal away the sheep. And then the second voice is that of the good shepherd who is leading us to safety, leading us to green grass and fresh waters. He's a good shepherd. And it says he lays down his life for the sheep. Like a good shepherd, he defends and protects his own. Now, in this, in this teaching, Jesus is calling us sheep, which is not the most flattering of animals to be compared to. You've probably heard it if you've been in the church a while. Sheep are not the most intelligent of all creatures. But the truth is that sheep are just followers, you know. A, a sheepdog can direct hundreds of sheep just by running alongside of them. If a thief comes and, and leads sheep astray, if a few of them start to go, they'll all go right after the thief. There is a story in Ireland some years ago of sheep that began to walk off the edge of a cliff into the ocean. And after a few of them did it, the entire herd flock of sheep went and just walked right off the cliff to their death in the ocean. The, the shepherd, it was like the B-team shepherd was there and he was inside eating breakfast. It was this whole story in Europe. It's pretty funny. But being compared to sheep is not the most, you know, generous comparison for us as people. It means we're quick to follow different influences. And so we need to train ourselves to hear the voice of the good shepherd over and against the voice of the thief. And so the thief, Jesus' enemies, has come only to steal, only to kill, only to destroy. Now how does he do this? Spiritual opposition in our lives can be both individual and and systemic. Individual and systemic. So first, individual opposition is the demonic activity or spiritual opposition against us as individuals and against our families, against our friends. And it often comes in the form of temptation, persecution, and fear. Temptation we talked about at length last time. It's the temptation to comfort and ease. We saw all of these in the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. The temptation to comfort and ease, the temptation to popularity, to caring more about what people think of you than what God thinks of you. And then the greatest temptation of them all, which is the temptation to power. And so the the devil is constantly tempting us with these things, constantly tempting us with things to draw us away from the good shepherd. Second individual opposition comes in the form of persecution. Certainly they don't realize it, but a lot of times the the non-Christians in our lives, when they speak against us, when they tease us for our faith or ridicule us or pass over us for for promotions, when they they remove us from positions at work, uh, when they spread false rumors about us, 
Now, of course, they don't realize that they might be being used by the enemy, but in that moment, I think we can look behind what's happening in front of us and see that the devil is always at work. He's always able to use ordinary and and insecure people, especially to speak truth against Christians to to, to try to distract us from following the Lord. And so temptation, persecution, now, it's not persecution if you're a jerk. I feel like I always have to say that. Like, if you're just being a rude Christian, that's not persecution. You're just being a rude Christian. So not everything's persecution. Some things are. And the third thing is fear. A spiritual opposition is almost always meant to, to incite fear in us. To create, to create fear, to create suspicion, to create doubt, to remove us from trusting the Lord himself. Whenever there's a, a major decision in front of us as, as people, spiritual warfare tends to heat up. Whenever we begin to follow the Lord for the first time or whenever we press into the Lord deeper, spiritual warfare heats up. Whenever we take a risk for the kingdom of God, spiritual warfare heats up. I know when we were getting ready to, to move here to, to plant this church two three years ago, it was like whatever, whatever the temperature was in, in our lives in terms of spiritual opposition, it just got turned up to 11, like overnight. It was the strangest thing. First of all, once we made the decision to move back here, it was like everything shifted uphill. My, my own personal depression began uh, to spike. Uh, my wife, Jessie, had a close friend just verbally uh, attack her uh, in, in our home, one of her close friends. Our middle son, Jude, started to have these night terrors that he had never had before. And I don't know if you've been around a, a child having a night terror, but it's one of the most excruciating things you can experience as a parent. Middle of the night, just screaming at the top of his lungs, often would, would fall out of bed or look like he's having a seizure, wakes up the other kids, so they're crying, and there's nothing you can do to wake them up. You're supposed to just basically leave them alone, which is the other hardest thing to do as a parent, just sit there and do nothing. As we were moving, I started having nightmares, um, more nightmares since we've been here. Often it's like a dark or, or demon-like figure standing over me as I'm sleeping. I've had dreams recently of, of a, the same kind of dark, demonic figure pulling uh, our kids underwater out of my grip. And there's, there's this tension in spiritual warfare because there's reasonable explanations for, for all of this. You know, stress always ramps up when you're making a big life transition. Uh, night terrors are, are common at, at the very age that, that Jude was at. And so there's always these, these explanations, but often it's in the background there's something far deeper, far darker going on. I was talking to one of my mentors who works with church planners, and he, and he basically said, yeah, what you're describing happens to everybody when they start a church. It's like everybody I talk to in the phase that you're in, they experience nightmares, uh, you know, night terrors. I didn't know what they were until I started working with church planners. All this stuff popping up in the lives, not just of, of the pastor, but others who are moving with us as well. There's an old saying, the closer you stand to the king in battle, the more likely you are to get hit by an arrow. And so there's individual opposition, but there's also what I call systemic opposition, where the, where the devil, where the dark forces of his evil can be against an entire people, an entire culture. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a, a doctor turned preacher in the 1900s. He was, uh, was not a sensationalist at all. He once uh, preached through the book of Romans for like 11 years 
So very intellectual British guy. But when he wrote a book on Ephesians, he called it Christian Warfare. And he wrote this, The history of the 20th century can only be understood in terms of the unusual activity of the devil and the principalities and powers. In a world of collapsing institutions, moral chaos, and increasing violence, never was it more important to trace the hand of the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, and then not only to learn how to wrestle with him and his forces, but also how to overcome them by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. If we cannot discern the chief cause of our ills, how can we hope to cure them? And so like Lloyd-Jones, we need to look at our world's biggest, most hideous problems and ask if there isn't some spiritual opposition running in the background. I think the most obvious example of this in our culture right now is the systemic racism that we've seen, not just in the last few months, not just in the last few years, but for hundreds of years in our country. There's this old saying in in management books that says that your system is perfectly designed to produce the results that it's getting. Uh, So in other words, like the Chick-fil-A drive-thru, it runs like NASA because they've designed this well-oiled machine to get like 120 cars through there every single minute. At the same time, there's a donut shop on on the south end, and I won't say which one it is. We call it Kmart Donuts, because it runs so slowly sometimes that I need to take a protein bar with me just to get through the line by the end of it. And so in the same way, their system, their, their hiring, their training, their process, it's perfectly designed to produce the results that it's getting. And so the problem is not that their system isn't working, it's working just fine. You need a whole new system. Now in the same way, I think this is what's been going on in America as long as it's been around. Before Black Lives Matter, we had to have a civil rights movement. Before the civil rights movement, we had to have emancipation from slavery. And if you trace it all the way back, you have European Americans killing Native Americans to take the land. There was not a time without systemic racism in our country. Now, we should be working towards social justice. We should be focused on education, equal health care, all of those things, absolutely, and many of you are. But as Christians, we have to recognize that that this work must be done in prayer. That all of our activity, all of our our work for social justice, all of it is is so good and Christ-like, but if it's not done in prayer, it's not going to overcome the gorilla that's in the back of the frame. As Christians, we can kind of see two distances at, at once, like, I don't know, bifocals. I think that's how bifocals work. We can see what's right in front of us, but we can also see what's happening in the background. I think often of what Jesus told his disciples when they they couldn't cast out one of the demons. He said, this one can only come out by prayer and fasting. In the same way, the greatest problems facing our society, facing our country, or any country can only come out by prayer, by fasting, by hungering for God, by holiness. And so how exactly does the Bible call us to do this? That's the second thing. How to engage in spiritual warfare. The best passage on this is Ephesians chapter 6. This is at the end of, of Ephesians. The Apostle Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. 
Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. He goes on to describe the armor of God as, as God's word, as, as truth, as salvation, as peace, as faith. But what I love is verse 18, the conclusion of the matter. He says, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. And so I think there's four things that, that the Apostle Paul is calling us to as we engage in spiritual warfare. The first one is to prepare yourself. Expect that spiritual opposition, if you are a Christian, will come against you. It'll come against you if you're not a Christian as well, but you won't have the resources. If you're a Christian, it's going to come against you and you need to prepare yourself. It's a spiritual battle, and so we prepare with spiritual training, spiritual resources. You've heard of treat yourself? This is prepare yourself, all right? It's a new commandment. How do you prepare yourself? Read the scriptures. Be reminded of truth. Let your mind be consumed with the words of scriptures. Memorize it. Be reminded of the truth of our enemy. Be reminded of Christ's victory over evil. Pray. Pray that the Father would not lead us into temptation, but would deliver us from evil. Paul said to be alert and to keep on praying. And then lastly, put on this spiritual armor for the spiritual battle. Protect yourself with peace and with faith in God's promises. And so first, prepare yourself. Second, stand firm. I don't know if you noticed, but the armor of God passage, this famous passage, it never actually says to fight. People all the time, they say, put on the armor and fight. That's not actually in the passage anywhere. I'm not sure it's in the New Testament anywhere or the old. What it says is to put on the armor of God so that you might stand. Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. And so it doesn't say put on the armor and then charge the gates of hell. Just go looking for the darkest, most evil places and put yourself right there just swinging like the sword of Scripture or something. Instead, it's saying we are in dangerous, enemy-occupied territory. The evil will come to you. All you have to do is stand. Expect opposition. Expect evil, but don't be overcome by it. Our task is simply to stay near the Good Shepherd. Remember, Jesus doesn't call us warriors. He calls us sheep. It doesn't preach quite as well, but we're sheep. Now, the third thing, prepare yourself, stand firm. The third thing is remember the gospel. We can stand. We can stand with boldness and with power, not because of anything that we have in ourselves, not because of our own power, not because of our own strength, not because of our own holiness, not even because of our own prayers, but we can stand with boldness and power because we're not standing for victory, we're standing from victory. 
We're not praying for victory, we're praying from victory. We already have the victory. That's Ephesians 1. It says, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And so the old apostle is saying, at the cross, at the resurrection, Jesus has defeated all the evil in this world. And in the the heavenly places, all the the dark spiritual places as well, they've all been conquered and overcome at the cross. Because the devil's key work, it's to kill and to steal and destroy. It's to to kill our souls, to, to steal eternal life from us, to destroy our souls. And at the cross, Jesus paid the debt that we could never pay ourselves. We have complete forgiveness of sin through the cross, through the resurrection. We have the very same power of God that raised Jesus from the dead, poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We have everything we need now to stand because we're standing from Christ's victory. When we pray, as as we do on Friday nights, often the Friday night prayer, we're praying from victory. We're praying for Christ's victory to be made fully realized in our midst. The victory's already been secured, it just hasn't been fully realized yet. There is still evil in our world that we stand against and we resist. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now the fourth and final thing is to pray. Pray in the Spirit. This is a phrase in the Scriptures that only Paul uses, pray in the Spirit, and and he's What I believe he's doing is describing prayer that is attentive to the Holy Spirit. Prayer that's that's more kingdom advancing in its nature. Not just praying for our own needs, which is important as well, but this is renewal seeking or revival seeking prayer. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Be alert and keep on praying. Spiritual warfare prayer is not the quiet contemplative sort. It's the forceful, assertive, authoritative sort. And so for me, when I want to engage in, in spiritual warfare prayer, it, it can be done through fasting. It's, it's best done with other believers in, in a community, in a small group where you can keep each other praying forward. I like to put on gospel music like Kanye's uh, Sunday service choir. If you haven't listened to that, like that'll empower your prayers like nothing else. Evil doesn't stand a chance when you've got the drum line with the choir. It's incredible. But as I said last week, if you're not in the battle, if you're not standing firm, you won't need prayer. If you're withdrawing from the world, if you're retreating from all trouble, you won't need prayer. You'll find yourself not needing God or at least believing that. I've said this before and I'll keep saying it. Often we don't experience God's power because we've constructed lives that don't require it. Our churches don't experience God's power because we've created churches that don't require it. Prayer is our direct line to the Father for help and strength when we're being opposed and it fails when we're only praying for our own needs to be met. As important as that is, that's not the fullness of prayer. N.T. Wright, he says, to pray, deliver us from evil, is to inhale the victory of the cross and thereby to hold the line for another moment, another hour, another day against the forces of destruction within ourselves and the world. 
I love that. Inhale the victory of the cross. So our prayers really do matter. They push back darkness. They, they call on God's power against evil. They change our hearts for sure, but they also call on God to change the world, to bring his power to bear in this moment, in this place, in this world. Bring healing, redemption, and hope. If I can close with a story, Raymond Edmond was a 25-year-old missionary living in the, the jungles of Ecuador. And he was dying of typhus fever. And so they called on a doctor from one of the big cities who, who specialized in this fever, and he came and basically said that Raymond was about to pass away at any moment. Raymond had recently married, and so the doctor told his young wife to begin the funeral preparations. And she took her white wedding dress and she dyed it black. Raymond then slipped into unconsciousness and they began to prepare for the funeral. Now at the very same time, 3,000 miles away from Ecuador in Massachusetts, Raymond's Uncle Joe was attending a church conference and was suddenly shaken with concern for Raymond. He had no knowledge of Raymond's sickness, but he couldn't shake the impression that this was from the Holy Spirit. And so he asked the conference leaders, could they pause and pray for Raymond? And all 200 of them, they paused and they did pray. And as soon as they began to pray, they felt compelled uh, to continue in prayer. For hours, they cried out to God to deliver Raymond from the evil one. The story says that they fasted from lunch and kept on praying, even though they didn't know what the evil was. Having no contact with Raymond at all, they continued to pray, continued to fast. They prayed and prayed, and then suddenly in the late afternoon, a peace came over the whole conference. All at once, they sensed that their prayers had been heard. At the same time, down in Ecuador, Raymond suddenly woke up from his unconscious state. He felt God's presence more powerfully than ever before. It was like his whole body was physically flooded with God's love. He woke up and was instantly healed. No fever. Many years later, Raymond Edmond became the president of Wheaton College and mentored a young student named Billy Graham. At Raymond's funeral, Billy Graham said this, We will never know the full evaluation of his life and ministry, but still I have to say that Raymond was the most unforgettable Christian I have ever met. See, to pray, deliver us from the evil one, is to push back on the darkness of our world. It's to inhale the victory of the cross. It's to put on the, the fullness of the armor with God, not to fight, but merely to stand to stand our ground and to stand near the Good Shepherd, to stand against individual and systematic opposition. To pray, deliver us from evil, is to remember that the thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. But also to remember Jesus' words from John 10, that he has come to give us life, and life to the full. Let's pray.